Have you ever been nervous when you've done something for the first time? First time jitters. I remember when we were playing football, uh, you know, the coach would say, you got to get that first hit out of the way to get the jitters for the game out. Perhaps the biggest thing that uh, really kind of freaked me out talking about first time jitters is the first time I ever got a flat tire on my own with dad not around. And uh, I don't know why they call a spare tire a donut, but it doesn't instill confidence that uh, something doughy is going to continue rolling while I'm going. And so uh, I was on my way home from college, freshman year, and uh, broke down along I-95 between um, the thriving metropolis of Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in some nondescript and abandoned stretch of highway where there was no one in any direction. And uh, you know, when you um, take your, your, your dead tire off and put the donut back on, Oh, you turn that, you turn that uh, uh, wrench to get those bolts back on, those nuts back on as tight as possible. And I was afraid to death because I didn't have a machine to tighten those bolts, just my hands. I thought, I better drive slow when I start off because I don't want to see my tire going while my car's going this way. There's a natural sense in which when you're doing something for the first time, especially if it requires some technical skill, you're just a little antsy. Has anyone bought a new computer recently? Crank that baby on for the first time, and you're not quite sure what all the buttons do because it's changed since the last computer that you've had. And this morning, we get to see something really kind of precious that I think many times as believers, we kind of gloss over as we continue through Matthew's story of Jesus. Jesus has done, as Joel said, many wonderful things. He's demonstrated his authority in his teaching and in his healing. He's demonstrated that he indeed is the king. Last week we heard that he has great compassion for the people. That he sees this wonderful harvest that is not going to be harvested in time. And he says there's not enough workers. Pray for more laborers. And today we see that he sends those laborers out. Those same disciples that he asked to pray last week, he tells to go and to do the things that they have observed him to do. But this is the first time they get sent out. How would you feel if Jesus said, hey, all those things that you know about me, that you've watched, that you've observed, I want you to do them now. Well, uh, Jesus, can I have another week of watching? Because I didn't watch too well. I didn't, I didn't take notes. I didn't know this was part of what it meant. And so as he prepares his disciples to go, there's something that should not be lost on us. Jesus has authority because he is God. And as he sends out his disciples as laborers in his harvest, he gives his authority to them. And by implication, to you and to me. So as we begin to turn the page from Matthew chapter 9 to Matthew chapter 10, which, by the way, is page 724 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, we think that every family should have their own copy of the Scriptures. Please take the one from the pew in front of you and feel free to use that. As we turn from chapter 9 to chapter 10, we see that the Lord of the harvest 
the master of the disciples, the king, sends out his disciples according to his plan. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them these instructions. He sends them out. As a matter of fact, just a few verses before, in chapter 10, he calls them apostles. Apostles mean sent out ones. And his plan, here in this verse, verse 5, he sent them out. His plan is his commission. And he's commissioned his disciples to go. This is important. Because it's a change from everything that we've seen in Matthew so far. The disciples are going out, being sent out under his authority, with his authority. It's almost as if Jesus is carrying on his own ministry just now through 12 people instead of through himself. One of the principles here is that Jesus knows that his time on earth is limited. And there are other things that he is doing besides simply healing 24 hours a day. He is teaching. He is preaching. He is confronting. He is taking his disciples and making them into the men that will lead his ministry. And he knows that for the gospel to go forth with the kind of world-changing power that it must, that he needs men that are trained to be able to take his message for him. And so it's not that Jesus is saying, I'm going to kick back in my sandals here and let you do all the work. No. Friends, that's not it. When Jesus calls you to be a laborer, it's not because he refuses to work. He works through those sent out. It's an age-old theological debate But if we don't go out, does that mean God doesn't work? We should feel the pressure of that. Because I think it's easy for us to assume that someone else will be faithful when we are faithless. God will see that his harvest is harvested. The question is whether you will participate in his plan. Now, as he sends them out according to his plan, sends them out, commissions them to go, we see, number two, that the king's plan has a prohibition. Look again at verse 5. It says that Jesus sent these 12 out after giving them instructions. Well, here's the first part of the instructions. He says, don't you take the road leading to other nations, to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now there's a couple things that we know from this passage because Luke and Mark also record a version of this sending out. We know specifically that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. That's helpful because there is accountability In case you want to chicken out, you have somebody with you who perhaps is a little more bold when you are perhaps a little more shy. But there's protection. The Bible says if one can be overcome, two can resist. And so Jesus has a plan to send them out. 
And as you compare Matthew's recording of this with Mark's and with Luke's, Matthew is the only one that has the last half of verse 5 in the beginning of in verse 6. Don't take the road going to other nations, to the Gentile nations, and don't you dare step foot inside one of the Samaritan towns. Does that sound a little strange to you? Because if you flip to the back of the book in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. Therefore, go! Make disciples of Jewish cities? Oh, what is happening here? Is Jesus not aware that he's going to give the Great Commission instead of simply the Jewish Commission? Has he changed his mind? Is this a contradiction? Why in the world would he limit the sphere of operation? No Gentiles, no Samaritans. Well, I would submit to you that this is indeed not a contradiction of the Great Commission because of its placement. Jesus knows, as well as we do, see, we know the end of the story. We know that there's increasing opposition and that the people that Jesus came to originally would see to his crucifixion. Now, we've got to put that out of our mind because it's not been clearly revealed yet with where we're at in the book of Matthew. We know that they don't like Jesus. There's no hint just yet that they're going to kill him. But we know that, don't we? And so if we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew progressively, um, consecutively, chronologically, we kind of have to put that aside and say, all right, let's just dive into it where we're at. What's important here, this comment of Jesus is as important because of its location in the history of salvation. Jesus came as the son of David. Good Jewish term, isn't it? He's the true king. He's the Messiah. He's the redeemer. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Yet he would be rejected by most of his countrymen. Why increase that opposition prematurely by skipping over the Jews to go to the Samaritans and the Gentiles? Jesus knows that in the fullness of time, when it's appropriate, once he's dead by crucifixion and resurrected, he will stand with resurrection authority and say, go. The people have proven their hostility. And so here he says, we're not going to the Gentiles just yet. Because Matthew in particular wants the church. He wants the world. And he wants the nation of Israel to know that they had the first chance. They had the first chance. Jesus did not skip the Jews and head straight to the more receptive Gentiles. And so while they have their chance, he encourages his disciples to just minister within a limited sphere of operation. Now it's interesting in verse 6 he says, Don't go to these other places, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now when you hear lost sheep, if you're my kids, you go, Oh, lost sheep. Oh, poor, poor sheep. Is that what Jesus means? I love cell phones. Is that what Jesus means? Does he mean, 
go, go to those poor, straying sheep. That's the first thing that comes to your mind, isn't it? Oh, those poor lost sheep. They got off on the wrong track. There's another way we use the word lost. If you were a soldier and you were assigned to guard a post or to guard a base and it is attacked and overwhelmed and you retreat and you report back to your commanding officer, what do you say? We lost the base. It's been overwhelmed. It has perished. It has been destroyed. Friends, Jesus is meek and mild. And he is loving and full of compassion. But when he says, go to the house of the lost sheep of Israel, he's not talking about a people who have strayed. He's talking about a people that are so spiritually off track that they are destroyed. The house of Israel has perished. It is not anything of what God intended for it to be. And we're not surprised by that. The minute they get across the Red Sea delivered by Moses, they begin complaining about God's providence. Um, I want you to notice you walked across on dry land and I fed you in the desert. Yeah, but we didn't like the menu. I gave you water from a rock. I made sure your shoes and your clothes didn't wear out. Yeah, but we just don't like your style. And so he says, go to this house that has been destroyed, that has perished from its initial purpose. That's why Jesus came. Because the nation of Israel had gotten so far off track. You see, Jesus was not as impressed with the house of Israel as they happened to be with themselves. Isn't that true of us too? It's so easy to be impressed with our obedience. I know that perhaps Jesus is not as impressed with us as we happen to be with ourselves. And it's interesting as we pay attention to this prohibition, this is not a forever prohibition. The Great Commission is true. This commission was given to the disciples for them, for then. Not to us, for forever. There would be a fullness of time in which Jesus' plan would grow out in concentric circles of concern. Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. Now what does Jesus do? He, he is um, knowing the natural propensity that we have to be perhaps a little fidgety when we do something for the first time. He doesn't leave anything, any rock unturned. He gives them explicit instruction. This is his plan. He gives them his prohibition. Number three, we see that the king sends out his workers preaching. He says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 7. And as you go, announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come. There's a lot of debate today over what is the nature of true Christian preaching. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And when it translates the verb for preaching in verse 7, did you hear how it said it? As you go, announce. Proclaim. Herald. See, the problem is today, if you watch the wrong channel, you would be convinced that some preachers view their role as being grandpas who tell great stories. 
Or some who, um, it's a comedy routine. And there's very little announcing of who God is. Of the majesty of the cross that our sin was so bad that the Son of God died. This is not, we're not advice givers as preachers. We are announcers of divine fact. And we ask for people to square their lives with the truth, with the plumb line of the scriptures. God has done this, and we are to announce it. And so what he does here is he tells his people to go preaching. It's the same message in Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist has. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's coming. Jesus in Matthew 4, his first sermon is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he gives his disciples their first sermon to preach, verse 7, as you go, announce that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the verb here indicates a great, a high degree of urgency. He says, as you go, preach. As you go, announce. As you go, herald. You get the sense that the disciples never stopped walking. But as they were making their way through the cities and the towns that Jesus called them to, they were um, walking and talking. And they, there were crowds that would come along because there was something about the message that was compelling. But they weren't going to stop because there were places that their master had told them to go. They were preaching on the move. Number four, in verse eight, we see that the king sends his disciples with his power. Not only are they preaching his message, limiting their sphere of operation to his prohibition, but Jesus gives of his authority and his power. Would the people receive Jesus as preachers? Listen, the last person that you pay attention to, perhaps, is the guy preaching on the corner, wearing the sandwich board. Not Maybe a good way to get a crowd, but perhaps not the best way of proclaiming the gospel. Would they recognize Jesus' voice in their preaching? Would they say, huh, kingdom of heaven is near. I've heard that before. Hmm, who was that? Oh yeah, Jesus. Would they recognize his authority through their preaching? Perhaps not. But you know what Jesus gave them? The affecting of miracles. That'll get their attention. Listen to verse 8. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those with skin diseases. Drive out demons. You have received free of charge. Give free of charge. The miracles were not ends in themselves. The miracles were truly not the end of the story. I love the way John refers to the miracles in his gospel. He calls them signs. Signs. So, S-T-O-P. Charlotte, 28 miles. Merge carefully. Signs. Indicating what is coming. They're not ends in themselves, but things that were designed to point to Jesus. And so the disciples were told explicitly to do the things that Jesus did, to heal, 
to raise the dead, to cleanse, to cast out. They were given a very specific set of instructions. We too are given a very explicit set of instructions. Except for us today, it's not heal, raise, cleanse, cast out. You know what our instructions are? Go. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach. That's our commission. And just like the early disciples had the opportunity to obey, the later disciples, you and me, we have his power too. We have his authority. Maybe the things that we do don't look so flashy. Maybe they don't draw the same kind of crowd. But they're the master's mission. And shame on us for wanting to do something else. Go. Make disciples. Baptize. And teach. Number five. Jesus starts to get extraordinarily specific with his instruction. The king instructs his men to trust his provisions. Jesus gets actually quite elaborate here because he tells them exactly what to take on their journey and where to stay. Jesus is their travel agent, so to speak. We have a group of six people that on Thursday is leaving for India. And I have already heard within the confines of my household, how in the world are we going to take everything we need in one suitcase? You wouldn't like to go on a mission trip with Jesus because he didn't even let you take a suitcase. He says, are you clothed? Yup. Is your belly full? Yup. You're ready. Jesus would come in right now to our service and say, there's nothing else that you need to do to go. You know, so y'all over here, we're going to send you out to York and y'all over here, you're going down to Chester in the back here, you're going to Fort Mill today. No specific preparation, no um, uh, things that you need to do to get ready, go. And so we see a couple of things here that are important. And the first is that the king asks for purity of motive in verse 8 and 9. He says, um, you have received free of charge, give free of charge. Don't take along gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals or a walking stick for the worker is worthy of his food. He says, first, related to purity of motive, I want you to give away what I have given to you. Freely you have received, freely give. You are not to make money off of this mission trip. Not only are you not to make money Jesus says, don't take money. Now, listen, we don't know how long the disciples were on the road. Why in the world would Jesus tell his disciples, as they're going out, uh, don't, take, don't take anything. Don't take money. Surely, among a congregation this size, we have a couple practically minded folks that would go, um, Jesus, that's just not going to work for me. What do you mean, don't take anything? No money? Oh, I got my credit card. No, don't take your credit card. Don't take your debit card. Jesus says, you got 
me. You don't need money. You've got me. You don't need money. Do you not trust me to feed you as I did the prophet in the wilderness who ate locusts and honey and who the ravens brought food? I'm the God that sustained millions of people in the desert. And you think you need to be self-sufficient? He wants purity of motive. Don't make money. Don't take money. Second, he asks for scarcity of possessions. Did you see what he said in verse 10? Don't take a traveling bag for the road. No suitcase. Not even a backpack. Don't take an extra shirt, extra sandals, or a walking stick. What in the world is going on here? He's saying travel light and travel simple. What's the, what's the problem with taking stuff? You know what the, the problem is with taking stuff? Is now you got to take care of it. Now you gotta have a, you got to have a, a dresser to put your clothes in. you got to have a nightstand to put your books on. You know, a corner to lean your walking stick in. You know, one of those little uh, unfolding things to put your bag on. There's more concern now because you have stuff. So he says, don't take a lot of stuff. Don't acquire stuff. Don't pick up a bunch of souvenirs. He's being very practical. He says, guys, listen, as you go preach, and I want you so dedicated to what you're doing that you don't have time to carry a wheelbarrow because you're preaching, because you're going, because you're representing me. Why carry things that you'll never pull out of your backpack anyways? You think you're going to stay somewhere long enough to set up shop? Be dependent on me. I don't need you to take cash. I don't need you to take things. You don't need your possessions. And then lastly here, the king provides lodging at his places. He says, listen, I've taken care of your stuff, and I'll take care of where you lay your head. Now listen, I think if I was following Jesus in that context, you remember what Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? I don't know that I would put Jesus in charge of accommodations at that point. You know, um, I would like a place to lay my head. You know, it, it can be hard, it can be soft, but at least give me a pillow. Uh, Jesus says, um, yeah, your cousin that lives in e- e- Ephraim, don't call him and ask, hey, can, can me and a buddy crash there for the next couple of days? He says, I will provide you lodging. Look at verses 11 through 15. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. I assure you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus' hospitality is important. I love the way in Hebrews it expresses it. It says, some of you, by being hospitable, have entertained angels unaware. What a cool verse. I'm pretty sure we've never had an angel stay at our house. The Bible says, what are angels? What's the word angel mean? Messenger. We've had a few messengers stay at our house. 
Why was hospitality so important in this context? Because all of the local places for lodging were known for crime and doubled as brothels. Not the kind of place you want to put Jesus' emissaries. So he tells them, find a worthy house. Now worthy, uh, when we first think of the word, we think that it means something related to virtue. It doesn't. It means being receptive or welcome. One of the things that's really neat about our ministry in India is we get to practice verses 11 through 15 almost verse by verse. Because how do we decide who to engage in evangelism? We walk through a town, and when, when a, a bunch of Western Americans, Caucasians, are walking through a town in India, you are a sight to behold. Uh, you know, they, they think you've, you've, you've just come back from Disney World, you know, and that you have all these things, and you've been to the World Series, and you've been to the Super Bowl, all these things that they associate with America. In almost every house, well, not every household, but it's not uncommon to have a family that is complete strangers with you to invite you into their home and to offer you a meal. Now, some of you don't like potlucks because you don't know who cooked what. I know what some of you do. You look to know who cooked what, and that's the only stuff that you get at the potluck. You know, I know Miss Jan made this, so that's all right, but that looks good, but I don't know who made it. How would you handle being in a foreign culture perhaps with one other person, not speaking the language, and being invited into someone's home for a meal. Do you know what that is? God's provision. It's a household that is worthy. And it's a beautiful thing to see these instructions that Jesus gave so many years ago, still wise, for missionary engagement. And so he says, don't shop around for who's got the coolest, most comfy digs. You find who's got the best heart. Somebody who's welcoming and someone who's receptive. Don't look for sumptuous and luxurious. Stay with the worthy person. Establish a base of operations. Don't hop around from house to house. You know, Don't hit the hearings this night and then the Gibsons and then the Guff. No, stay someplace. Stay with the welcoming. Shun the rejecting. And he says something really powerful. You see, any Jew returning from a foreign country, when they got to the border of Israel, I'm not going to untie my shoe. They would untie their shoe and they would take their sandal and they would shake the dust out of that country before they crossed into Israel because they didn't want to bring the pollution, metaphorically, the sin, the corruption of that country into Israel. Every pious Jew would do that. They would shake the dust off their sandal. They would shake it out of their uh, tunic. And did you hear what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, listen, if they reject you, that's a serious, serious sin. And he tells his disciples to shake the dust off their feet. Not of foreign countries, but who? Their own countrymen. To the Jews. Shake the dust off your feet. Do this to Jewish homes and towns. This is a very symbolic way of Jesus' emissaries saying that now the Messiah views them as pagan, polluted, due judgment. Jesus says that their sin of rejecting his apostles is more gross than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah.
it's interesting because the rejecting, the hard-hearted, fall deeper than Sodom. But the welcoming, the receiving, they get shalom. When you find a worthy house, extend your greeting of peace. And if they're truly worthy, your peace will rest on them. There will be a blessing that comes to them. Your peace will rest on them. So in essence, Jesus is telling them that they need to trust him for their provisions on their mission trip. He wants them unencumbered by the things of this world, relying simply on his providence and the hospitality of the people that he'll send them to. They don't even need to worry about lodging. He'll take care of it. So how many of you ready to sign up? His plan, His prohibition, His preaching, His power, His provision. Oh, there's one more point. Number seven. The king prepares his people for problems. Verse 16. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Sharon's on the piano. I'd get her to give me a little dun, 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 dun. Sheep among wolves? Um, Listen, if my fantasy football team was the sheep and I was playing the wolves, I think I'd skip that week. Sheep never win against wolves. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. Can you ever think of a snake being praiseworthy? Certainly not when you think theologically. And they're not holding up serpents as a whole. They're saying they're cunning. They lie in wait. They're wise. And so this is a foreshadowing of increasing hostility. Jesus likes animals. He talks about sheep, wolves, snakes, and doves. And it's important for us to remember this. That Jesus is the one sending out seemingly the seemingly hopeless mission of sheep going to wolves. He says, sheep, listen, go to the wolves and do this ministry. And he says that the nonviolent will overcome the violent. Isn't that amazing? Those who are weak in an outwardly powerful world will trump the power of those who think that they're powerful. Our weakness is not a miscalculation on Jesus' part. Oops, lost 50 sheep to two wolves. Didn't see that coming. It's not a miscalculation, but it's a deliberate plan. That's why we're told to be wise. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be peaceful. We're not to search out the wolves. We'll be ready for them. They're there. Think of the characteristics of two of these animals. We're we're called to be like sheep. We're called to be like doves. They're peaceful. They're harmless. They're simple. They're nonviolent. And as God's people, we're called to fight the darkness without being fighters. We're called to hate. We're called to minister to the hateful without harboring any hate for those who would consider themselves our enemies. While we might be called to be an army, we're not to be a vicious army. We're not to be marauding conquerors. Our motive is to be love. And it's to be the 
simplicity of the gospel message that Jesus has given us. We're sheep. We're to be sheep. Following the voice of a master who, like a sheep, was silent before his shearers, offered himself to be obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Who allowed himself to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins for all who would trust in him. And friends, that's our message. We love to sing about the blood of Jesus. Are we willing to sweat for it? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and do what he calls his disciples to do? We may not be in the holy land, going from town to town. But we're called to be his workers. We're called to preach his message. And we're called to a particular manner. We're not to be haughty. We're not to be boastful. Not in ourselves, but in Christ who saved us. So friends, today, you can't be on his team without knowing the king. Today, if you don't know him, would you trust him? If you know him, will you show to a watching world how worthy he is of your service? By working for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. God, help us to be mindful of the tremendous privilege of being called your sons and your daughters. God, let us work for you. And let our work not just be hidden behind the scenes. That's precious and that's necessary. But God, we need to be workers in the world, consciously working to bring in your harvest. God, we pray that you give us your holy boldness to live for you in this world of wolves. In Jesus' name we pray.